Welcome to the Mentality Podcast. I'm Stevie Ward and we've got a little bit of housekeeping today. Don't know if it's housekeeping, but we do need to name a lucky winner of a Cultivate Tea from our recent Instagram post. If you were lucky enough to see this post and comment and tag your favourite podcast and then also tag a mate basically just to see what guys you were thinking and see if you would pull a mate along the way with you on this journey that we're all on. John Peach, cheers for your comments. You had a few favourites, one being Rob Burrows, Simon Russell, you enjoyed the Cipriani and Mark Piet podcast. Jack Garnett caused a bit of chaos. You told us that you loved the Brian Mack podcast and you pulled in your mate called Ashley Brighton. A little bit of an argument kicked off on here because Ashley told Jack that he was more of a house of rugby man himself. Which is a little bit disappointing, Ash. Safe to say that you haven't won the tea, my mate. But, you know, once you, you get going with all the podcasts, you learn a few more podcasts, we would want to rescue you from saying things like up with a hask that was taken very literally by jack um so it kicked off it kicked off we had to split that up but yeah thank you you guys for having the fight on the mentality page that was great alex lee you enjoyed the midlife mystery that was number two that was podcast number two and yeah that's a long time ago that's before we started putting cool music in the intro and all this sort of stuff um, so yeah, nice to see that, you, that you've, you've given that a rep. You said it was good amidst all the uncertainty. Um, Craig White is a little bit of a guru amongst what the world can throw at you. So it was a good podcast, what we could record back then. A couple of votes for Brian Wood's podcast, one by Alex Morell, one by Adam Blackburn. And the winner by random selection is Steve Dagg who mentioned that he liked the Barry Mack podcast. He enjoyed the advice on goals, which I picked up on recording the podcast, and he also liked the info on the infamous Roundy Hills, which can kill people. We will message you, mate, to let you know about the logistics, the size and the colour for the Club of 80, which we have just reordered, mate, as it is the bestseller for the Mentality Apparel. So you are a lucky man. You are a lucky man. So thank you guys for all of the interaction. Thank you for all of that. It's always nice. It's always nice when you put stuff out, you know, and you get comments back and people are sort of enjoying what you've done. Because you can forget, you know, you can forget what you're doing. You can get amidst all of the madness that's been going on over the last how many months it's um, it's been strange for everyone it is unprecedented how many times the word unprecedented has been used for these times but yeah it's been crazy and there's been ups and there's been downs there's been downs which just seem to go on and on and on it's been a, a tough time for me with concussion you know there's been moments which I've snapped there's been moments which have been hard um, and, it's, and it's been a tough, tough time. I think a lot of people found it tough. We are coming back into what some would say is almost normality, but we, we know the real picture. We know that there's things that, that still need to change and there's things that we still need to be careful about with COVID. Leeds United have gone up and that's made me the happiest for a good, good while. Even Natalie mentioned 
that I'd had a massive smile upon my face just after or during the time in which it was inevitable that we were going to go up after West Brom failed to beat Huddersfield after Huddersfield being 2-1 I could see it and I got a surge and a release of 16 years of hurt just just being sort of dumped um, and what what an amazing time I had such a great weekend such a good time talking about that on Sky Sports alongside Paul Robinson a fellow I used to watch a long time ago and also met Jimmy in Beckford which was a, an unreal 45 minutes chatting to him and actually just talking about life talking about the way that we live in the world and you know footballers I guess you know there's, there's that stereotype which can be that you know they're they're arrogant and they don't really have time for you you know that's that's a stereotype and you know I've, I've been lucky enough to meet some footballers one being Jermaine Beckford that completely smashed that stereotype for me and smashed that perception because he had all the time in the world for a chat all the time in the world to talk about what we all witnessed to be Leeds United going up so that was amazing I hope that we get him on very very soon and I hope we can do that for you guys and have a real I mean real chat because that's what we're talking about that day after being on Sky Sports we are sponsored by Better You and we are supported by Better You we did a podcast with Andrew Thomas not so long ago he's a few podcasts back and he's an interesting man he's got some interesting stories and interesting reasons for why he has put Better You out there and Better You is well, it's an award-winning natural health brand, Better You. It specialises in the pill-free supplementation of nutrients that have been underrepresented or simply omitted due to our modern diets and lifestyles, including, and this is the, the one, transdermal magnesium and oral vitamin sprays. So it's not just your basic tablets and you can take magnesium there, magnesium in through the skin so in a nice relaxing bath and it's the the best type of magnesium i will stress that too you can hear all about that in the last podcast well it's not the last one it's a few podcasts ago but yeah the magnesium has been helping me with migraines from this concussion i am on my way to getting better the days which are tougher are fewer and far fewer and further in between and the magnesium is something that I'm using daily to help me with my recovery, especially from migraines. As you guys may know, it's a big thing to help that, and also asthma in the case of Andrew Thomas. So I can tell you that I am really thankful for Better You supporting us. Keep going with the sleek, cool branding that you have, the informed sport goodness, and your dynamic health support for us elite athletes and the people who also need it most, like you guys listening. We all need a bit of health. I especially need a bit of health at this moment in time too. So on the podcast today, on the podcast today, we have got, and this we recorded a while ago, and the thing we've got quite a few podcasts in the backlog, in the catalogue, which is good for us. We've got Sophie Medlin. She is a founder of City Dietitian, and she is the go-to whenever the telly needs a dietitian, like, you know, when they get them on one show and all that sort of stuff to just spread a bit of knowledge and, and sort of that, that info that people need. And, and what she does know about as well is she caused a bit of a rift amongst the vegan population, which is a great story. So I look forward to that. And we're also joined by the prince or the newly 
crowned prince, crowned king of the vegans um, on this one. Chris O'Connor sits on the other end of Skype to join us for this podcast. And the topics that we cover, it's a long intro this, and I apologise for that, but it's, it's been fun recording it. Uh, Sophie's experience with mental health. She actually struggled with some, what she'd say straightforward tasks, or from what her, her colleagues would say straightforward tasks, at King's College in London. So a good gig there, but she was, after a bit of to and fro in and realising that she wasn't that happy with what was going on, she was diagnosed with dyspraxia, dyslexia and ADHD. She decided to go into science communication. She talks a little bit about, which is important for this time, aesthetics. What we are taught that we should look like and what the most important thing is about us or what we think should be the most important thing about us, what we knock about day-to-day life, um, thinking that aesthetics is the most important thing and how we attach value to aesthetics too. Social media being the issue causing anxiety in people to be body conscious too and our relationship with food. She said quite a good thing which was we should think about why we are eating something sometimes or more than what we are eating um, which I thought was a big thing. I'm always attached to thinking about the reasons why in anything. Uh, We talk about a professional athlete's relationship with food, whether that's a healthy one, whether it's an unhealthy one. I had some questions on that for Sophie, myself. Fasting, the research for fasting, intermittent fasting is a good mechanism for weight management. We talked about the research and evidence behind 16 to 8 hour patterns. We talked about gut health. Now this is a big thing that Sophie's on at the minute. Gut health and mental health. We talked about the microbiome in the colon and how it actually can affect our mental health. So this is a big thing. This is something that I think people will get a lot from this. And we talked a bit about the diversity in terms of plant matter in your diet. The more diversity in terms of that, the better. And we talked about prebiotic versus probiotic food. Sounds scientific, but it all gets broken down very well by Sophie. And we talked a lot about gut bacteria. This is seemed to be the biggest topic and the biggest sort of knowledge point that Sophie had. We talk a little bit about concussion and what I should be using, um, medicinal mushrooms in there as a sort of the new thing on the block, the new kid on the block. And yeah, we talked a bit about CJ Chris O'Connor, the man who is a, a, a sort of jack of all trades really, um, is a podcast you know, he's amazing at recording podcasts. He's a playwright. He writes Connected that's been on this podcast channel. You can hear me acting with another actor called Paul Fox and a lot of stuff like that. We talked about pooing in a bag and sending it to America, um, which is companies want to have something to tell you when it's not evidence-based. It's like that sort of thing where you do poo in a bag, send it to America and you get a lot of facts back about your diet, which is basically just them collecting your data which is going to be really valuable for the company going forward. So do be conscious about pooing in bags. Enjoy the podcast. I guess we'll we'll kick on and, and dive straight in. So if it's it's awesome to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. How did a young Sophie dream up and, and get to become a, a dietitian? What, 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 how, what did that look like when, when you were younger? 
So I was a strange 15-year-old child who knew this is what I wanted to do. So I'm not sure that I knew what being a dietitian would be like or any of those things, but I was um, good at sciences and good at uh, cooking and food and interested in food. And um, my, my catering teacher, actually, GCSE catering teacher said, have you thought about a career in nutrition? And off I went and did my reading and found out that if I was a nutritionist, then I couldn't work as a dietitian in hospitals. But if I was a dietitian, I could do both and do everything. So I decided to train as a dietitian. And my career has been varied and complex and interesting, but always like, I'm super passionate about it. I'm very lucky. Um, and I've been a registered and qualified dietitian since, since 2007, which always feels a bit scary when I say that now. Yeah. <laughs> could, could you just, uh, just for me, because... You know, it seems that every other person you meet online or is a nutrition now, nutritionist nowadays. What is the distinction then between dietitian and nutritionist? Yeah, great question. So a registered nutritionist will have done a degree in nutrition, usually for, uh, alongside dietitians initially. So nutritionists and dietitians do a degree in nutrition, but dietitians then learn how to apply that to medicine. So we'll go into hospitals and have placements alongside doctors and nurses and physios and people like that. So it's kind of the difference between like... Um, I don't know what the equivalent in physio world is, but if you're, you're reg we're registered healthcare professionals like physiotherapists. So not you, can't, you can only call yourself a dietitian if you've done all the relevant training, you've worked in hospitals, you've done all of those things. Whereas unfortunately in the moment, anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. So it's not a protected title, which is why you see so many people online saying they're a nutritionist. Either of you guys could start saying you're a nutritionist. That would be completely fine. Uh -huh. um, you can print off a certificate from Groupon and say, okay, I've done a half day course in nutrition and now I'm a nutritionist and off you go. So unfortunately for them as a profession, there's no regulation. Um, right. I guess the thing that I'm trying to promote about dietitians is that the, the key difference is if you've got a medical problem that you would see a doctor for, you need a dietitian. But if you just want general health promotion or you want kind of um, – you're healthy but you want to get healthier those kinds of things or you want to mm. work with someone on product development then it's fine to work with a nutritionist or a dietitian but as long as your nutritionist is registered cool that's a really really good answer yeah and i guess the, like you said the benefit is you can do both yeah absolutely and i i now in my kind of current roles uh skirt the two worlds which is very exciting for me and 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 what did you study then because you've you've done quite a lot in in research stuff could you tell us a bit about that and, and what specific you've you've gone into do with that yeah, so I studied nutrition and dietetics at uni and then I did uh, seven or eight years in the NHS. So I, I, I focused primarily in terms of my clinical career and also in my research in the impact of bowel surgery on your general life, uh, nutritional status, but also quality of life and all these kinds of things. So um, that was part of my research. And I work a lot with people who have a colostomy or an ileostomy. Um, so those kinds of patients, maybe people have heard of that, maybe they haven't, but it's a consequence of bowel surgery. Um, where instead of pooing from your bottom, you poo into a bag that sticks to your tummy. Um, and so that can be obviously very debilitating for people in lots of different ways. But they're an amazing community to work with. There's quite, you know, every little bit of your gut does a slightly different job in terms of absorption of nutrients. So when we cut bits out, there is an impact on your ability to absorb foods, but also your, your experience of eating foods. Um, so it's a great community to work with in that sense because you can make a real difference to their quality of life and really support them to to live in a happy and healthy way. Um, and there's not a lot of people working in that area. So I'm really passionate about supporting that community. Um, so that's basically what I've done in my research is all about gut health stuff uh, and the impact of eating um, and bowel surgery. And is this sort of the bulk of your work that you did in the NHS too? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I worked in the NHS. I did, as all dietitians do, sort of start off in quite a general role. So I started off in elderly medicine, which is a lot of tube feeding and things like that, which people perhaps don't realise. So um, at the moment, you know, we've got this COVID-19 crisis and anyone who's ventilated and on intensive care, they can't eat anything at all because they're unconscious. So dietitians will organise and um, make sure that the tube feeding that we do, so we'll pop a tube up their nose and into their tummy, um, we'll make sure that they're meeting their nutritional requirements, make sure that they're getting all the micronutrients that they need, so vitamins and minerals and all of the electrolytes when they're sick. So your nutritional requirements are really different when you're that sort of sick. And we help them to then get back onto normal eating. So I did a lot of that in my early career and then later on in more complex patients. So people who had had complicated bowel surgery, maybe people who couldn't eat anything at all because of their gut surgery, we would feed them into their veins. And that, again, is something that dietitians prescribe and monitor and make sure that everyone's getting everything they need for their short and long term health as well. Right. So it's quite scientific at that level. So, yeah, that's that's what I did in my clinical work primarily. And and so like, there's obviously been a process for you to become sort of freelance. And, and I know you're like the go to um, dietitian for, for TV work, for, for radio work. And, and, and you sort of do do different bits now. What was the process in leaving the NHS uh, to go to to do you know, the, the host of other stuff that, that you do now? So I yeah, so did a good stint in the NHS, which I think is really important for anyone who's interested in, in getting into dietetics specifically, because, you know, you, could, you might see 30, well, might see 10 patients a day in the NHS, which, you, you know, that level of experience and working alongside colleagues is so valuable. Mm. Um, I then went to lecture, so I lectured and researched for five years, which was, again, brilliant experience and also kind of um, led to lots of opportunities in media. I, my last lecturing post was at King's College London, which is like a PR powerhouse. So mm. it was amazing for me to be able to say, I'm a lecturer at King's and this is what I do. And it's still, you know, I still partly dine out on that title being able to say <laughs> yeah. that to people. Um, so when I was there, I actually found out, this is a kind of convoluted story, but probably really relevant to the people that you, you're kind of uh, podcasting to. I found out that I, so I was basically struggling with some of my like straightforward tasks that I needed to do things like timetabling and stuff that was like things that were admin tasks for some reason kings do things in a very kind of archaic way and so timetabling was done still through spreadsheets and transferring things from one spreadsheet to another and all this kind of stuff and I was constantly making mistakes and I was really frustrated and I was talking to my mentor and she was like you know if you were doing this and you're a student I'd tell you to go and get tested for dyslexia and I was like well funny you should say that because I've always you know suspected that that might be an issue for me um and I decided at that point in my career that it was the right time to go and get tested and I had kind of deferred it before um but it was really frustrating to me that I was unable to do some of this really straightforward stuff um and it made me feel like I was stupid like I like everyone else could do it and I couldn't do it and it was having a really bad impact on my self-esteem and how I felt um you know about my intellect and my capabilities and all this kind of stuff I was living this really kind of imposter syndrome life where I was a lecturer at King's which is arguably the best university for my profession in the whole country probably Europe and then also I couldn't do this kind of day-to-day stuff that really should have been really easy for me so I went and got tested and I found out that actually I've got dyslexia dyspraxia and ADHD so I got the full hat trick which was honestly um a bit of a game changer for me in terms of um where I went with my career so at that point I was trying to decide whether I wanted to um, do my PhD and apply for funding or whether I wanted to take excuse me take advantage of some of the media opportunities I was getting and and going more into science communication 
which is probably actually my wheelhouse. And um, at the time I was seeing a counsellor and we had this big, interesting and useful conversation about who I was doing things for and what I really wanted to do versus what I felt I should do and what I thought would make people proud or make people think differently of me, mm. which was so valuable. So I had these diagnoses and I was like, actually, I'm never going to be, there's a lot of things I'm never going to be very good at, but there's loads of things I am really good at. And it was super empowering to get those diagnoses and say, actually, I'm just going to focus on the things I'm really good at. And I'm going to stop trying to do things that I'll mm. never be very good at. And um, aside from having to do horrible things like accountancy and that sort of thing now, which I pay someone for, but still have to do the day-to-day stuff. I do very little now that I'm not very good at. And I'm really blessed to be able, you know, if I write something in the past, I might have sort of felt a bit embarrassed if, I, if there were spelling mistakes and things like that. Whereas now I'll send it to someone and say, can you just proofread this? Because I'm really dyslexic. It's really hard for me to just make sure everything's right. Yeah. And I have no shame in that. No, like it's completely fine for me to say that now. And that's been super empowering and has massively improved my mental health because I don't have that kind of, I'm stupid. There's something wrong with me. Like I'm stupid and everyone else can do it and I can't do it. And why? And that means that I'm this and that. Now I'm just quite nice to myself about it. And I don't mind if I'm late and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) yeah, Just, yeah, that's, that's a really long story hopefully useful for people as well it sounds really freeing it sounds really sort of like you've you've been able to i mean use you know that diagnosis and and sort of address what you actually want to do and and um become free in that sense and what what some of the things that that you've gone on to now and and some of the things that that you're doing from day to day and 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 the odd sort of event or the odd sort of you know television program or whatever what's that what's the sort of the working life um look like for you now that you've 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 had that sort of um realization if you like yeah so i set up my business which is city dietitians i set that up um and then did about six months of working 24 7 to try and build up the business while i sort of got ready to leave academia um and so now i see patients one-on-one so i look after still those specialist colorectal patients so patients who've had bowel surgery um which is very fulfilling people travel a long way to see me which i'm so privileged and lots of consultants refer to me which is lovely um so i see patients in my clinic in farringdon which is lovely and a big part of what makes me really happy as a practitioner and the things I do feel like I'm making a difference I also work with women primarily women on their relationship with food and the issues that we can often develop as a result of kind of constant dieting and constant uh feeling like the sort of pressure of how we should look and all that kind of stuff um and that is also very rewarding and very kind of counselor focused which is something that I've done some additional qualifications in and I feel very um powerful I feel very empowered with and it makes a big difference to people which is lovely um I also do consultancy for companies so I do things like design vitamins for people uh for companies and things which is really fun um and obviously I take my you know knowledge of nutritional requirements and all that kind of stuff that I did in the NHS and how to prescribe for individual people and groups and then take that into the product development process which I love um I also work for companies on developing services for people around nutrition so I do a lot of consultancy for companies in that sense I also do corporate wellness things. I work with Hilton and these kinds of companies to do all sorts of different bits and pieces to improve employee well-being. And then, as you say, I do the media work. So um, the media work is primarily a bit of an add-on, really. And I love it. And I feel very privileged to be able to do it. And obviously, it's brilliant PR for the company, which I'm really grateful for. So I do lots of podcasts like you, with you guys, which is brilliant. Um, I also do some TV work, as you say. So there's lots and lots of foodie programs like How to Lose Weight Well and Inside the Factory. And I've done some stuff with The One Show. Um, and I've just started a radio show with North uh, North London Radio, which I'm excited about, and 
yeah, it's been really lovely. And, I'll, you know, my my mum actually, my mum just messaged me last night and said, oh, I just heard you on the radio, on Radio 4, which is so nice. Yeah. Like, she's so proud and that's lovely. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I do all sorts of different things, really. It keeps me out of trouble. Sounds good. It keeps you busy, I imagine, too. Yeah. yeah it's very TV, but amazing, <laughs> yeah. Do you know what, though? Because I think because of my ADHD, that makes me really happy. So going from, like, doing one thing to one thing to one thing to one mm. thing keeps my brain occupied and keeps me really, it makes me always feel really energised for the next thing that I'm doing. I think, again, if I remember back to my academic career, trying to sit down and deal with, like, a massive document that will take a whole day or whatever – that makes that just fills me with dread now whereas now I can kind of do a little bit of this a little bit of that a little bit of that and um, yeah it makes me really happy it sounds like you've like well, the journey you kind of described is you've absolutely maximized your strengths and and you know maximize the time you spend on your strengths and it just made me think imagine if society was was geared that way so uh the flip side people who are introverted could not be forced to do loads of stuff all the time and could instead spend all the day in the library and do th- I think we'd probably live in a far more productive, happier society if we actually focused on... But, you know, we find out by doing the things which aren't right for us, don't we? But if we actually spent some time learning that at school, like what type of person we are, what our strengths are and weaknesses, we could probably um, save so much stress for young people coming out of education into the wider world. Totally. And I think one of the big issues there is this sort of societal pressure that's placed on people that you you have to be this, or you have to aim yeah. for this, or you have to, you know, this is what's valuable and this stuff isn't valuable. Whereas, you know, I think a lot of us get to kind of our, our 30s and start thinking, actually, what do I really want to do? And life is not really about just kind of constantly staying on the treadmill. But ultimately, so many young people, I think, persecute themselves through their 20s. And put, like lots of certainly lots of people who then go on to have a family and therefore have mortgages to pay and things can't get off that treadmill and can't mm-hmm. reevaluate because of that pressure, um, especially with men, I think. But I think, um, you know, yeah, as you say, if we could just be a bit more uh, gentle and open with children and say that they can do whatever they want to do, whatever makes them happy and try and help them to explore their strengths rather than trying to pigeonhole everyone into kind of high, I guess, high earning careers or whatever it might be or high status careers, I think people would be a lot happier. Mm, that's yeah that's a good point I think we're, we're you know I'll, I'll add to that about the treadmill and, and it's something that I've seen um, or heard about uh, as of recently just recently and it's called the hedonic treadmill it's a, a, a term that will coin in psychology and it, it probably links in there with what you're saying so if you like the sort of and I felt in my life like the sort of treadmill that you're on to make achievements to, to sort of strain and struggle to get there and to to get to these things that you that you you're told that you, you need to get to, um, and I think this period now is is, is obviously with the lockdown of coronavirus is is probably given a, a large fraction of the population time to sort of be away from that treadmill and to um, to sort of evaluate and look at look at the sort of things that I imagine you have um, that that you had that opportunity to do and, and chance to do too and and to sort of um, really zone in on, on, on what, what they're doing. I'm open people that are exploring that and experimenting with that too. Yeah, totally. So it's uh, yeah, quite a big thing and quite a, quite a nice bit of your story. I think how, how do we, how do we bring, and, and you touched on something here with, with like um, t- speaking to women um, about like their relationship with fruit, with food and, and diets and, and um, with body image and stuff. And, and I know that this will be something that's, that's really relevant for men anyway. Um, you know, obviously with stuff like bigorexia and sort of what well, we're going back to that sort of um, societal sort of um, fixation on, on what people want to look like and what what's some of the different relationships with food that, that 
men and women have really um, nowadays. And and how's how, how's that um, how is that sort of appeased with with different things that they do? Yeah, well, let me uh, let me focus it on men because you know having. I do a lot of talking about this. I work with boxers and bodybuilders and people like that on, on body composition, but ultimately a lot of that behavior and we see it so much coming down through young men now as well. So whereas previously this was very much focused on women, certainly these issues are being played out with men um, and with aesthetics being the goal above anything else. So uh, an example would be, it doesn't matter if you don't have dinner with your partner every night, if you're fasting, so you stop having dinner with your family because you're fasting or because you're in the gym every night or because you are doing whatever that thing is that's more important than those really important interactions. Um, so we see that a lot, prioritizing the gym and or very restrictive eating over those other really important things in life. And the food is so much more than just nutrition. Food is part of our culture. It's part of our bonding. It's part of all of the things that kind of make us human. And I think we often, and it's very easy, I think, for men uh, or easier for men to follow a really prescriptive diet for lots of different reasons. But often the reason for that is is not necessarily very healthy. It's maybe a bit disordered. And I guess the thing to look out for is if your diet or your gym regime is impacting on the rest of your life and you feel like it's you know it's not taking up 90% of your life uh, and maybe 90% of your brain energy <laughs> rather than all of that that could be used for other things – we are taught, you know, as a society, I think particularly with Instagram and things like that now, that we're taught that our, what we look like is the most important thing about us. And of course, that is so far from the truth. Um, I'm thinking about a couple of patients who I've worked with who have in the past been, you know, in really, really good shape, as in like competing bodybuilder shape. And now that they're not, they feel that like completely inadequate. They don't feel like they can talk about their experience. They don't feel that that's you know, they're relevant anymore. And I think that's really toxic for all of us because ultimately what you look like is very little to do with, you know, obviously if you're a professional sports person, it's like different because your aesthetic will reflect your level of training that you're putting in. But ultimately for most of us, if your job is to sit at a desk and do your job and then look after your family and do whatever else and all those important like kind of quality of life things, then actually you're probably not going to look like a professional athlete. And the fact that all of us are kind of aiming for that at the moment mm. is, is not healthy for us. Do you feel, um, you mentioned Instagram and do you, uh, cause I, I, all that rings true with me, right? I think it's completely, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's true reflection of today's society that there's that huge onus on aesthetics, but I don't understand, I don't know how we sort of change the tide because social media is such a big dominant force now and young people are growing up with it and it's it's becoming ingrained in a young age it's um i fear that we're just seeing the tip of an iceberg and there's going to be lands you know huge amounts of issues of anxiety and body issues and you know we might be seeing that you have a better understanding than i do but we might be seeing that already but i don't know how we go about changing it yeah, it's really difficult. I think that, um, so I guess from a female perspective, we're a little bit further on on that journey than maybe the men, what you men are, unfortunately, because we've had that kind of societal pressure and, and control of our bodies and what they should and shouldn't look like for a lot longer um, in a lot of ways. But I do think that Instagram has led everyone to believe that everyone has a six pack. And if you haven't got a six pack, then you're not some, you're not whatever an Instagram worthy. And therefore, you know, your life isn't relevant and no one wants to see it or whatever it is. I think that there is a mental process going on there that makes us think that if we don't look like what we perceive to be all the people on Instagram, 
then we are not uh, someone that's worth yeah, sharing our story or having a voice or whatever else it is. Um, I, I think, as I say, I think it's interesting that women are, I think, a little bit further on on this journey and we're kind of rebelling against it. And there's a real movement towards body positivity um, and those sorts of things, um, which I'm not seeing yet in women. I think, you know, women's health have plus size models on the front of their on a fairly regular basis now women who are working out who are in in good shape but are not kind of a size six or a size four or whatever that kind of norm would have been 10 years ago I think we're a long way off seeing a non (laughs) seeing a man on the cover of men's health who doesn't have a six pack and who isn't hasn't got huge guns or whatever else it is you know um, and they are, of course, just an example of common, commonly consumed media and, and what we, you know, how we shape what we think our bodies should look like. So they're certainly not the only ones, and they're certainly not the kind of main catalyst of these some of these problems. So I'm not suggesting that, but I think, yeah, I think there's some interesting stuff around there, and I think I, I think that women could help men, but I'm not really sure how we do that at the moment. It's sort of like it is going back to that relationship with with food and 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 what I guess it's what that means to you, isn't it? And um, how how you sort of get through that because people could decide to eat different foods and and, it, and it's it's sort of going back to the meaning of why they're eating it. Obviously, people might you know be in a habit of of eating something really unhealthy like a pack of crisps or something when they get straight back in from work. But then on the other end of the scale, there might be someone who's like you say is fasting um, because they really want to look in a certain way and they and they're sacrificing like that that serious time with the family because they, they don't want to eat at that point of time or they need to eat extras and it's all I guess it's all coming back to the meaning of, of why they're doing it and is that something that you sort of address like that what the purpose is and what the meaning is and where they're at um with their mindset for it yeah totally and you're completely right to acknowledge that restrictive eating mm. and overeating and especially kind of emotionally driven overeating mm. are actually the same disorder so they're the same thing, just the, the behavior is just different. So the feelings are likely to be the same and the reasons are likely to be the same, but the behavior is different. Mm-hmm. And that's where we can get in really difficult ground when we say things like um, to people who are overweight or just move more and eat less. Like it's so easy to just move more and eat less, but actually the behavior is the symptom. The problem is the underlying thing, right? So um, a lot of the work I do is trying to help people to understand um and again, this could be someone who's underweight or overweight. It is about their relationship with food. It's not about the behavior that they enact as a result. So controlling what you eat is is a similar behavior to overeating. It's just a response to your environment and what's going on. So um, it, what, we'll, what I do in those sessions is really try to unpack um, all of people's relationship with food, all the things that makes them change what they eat and what they don't eat and their beliefs and thoughts around food. We talk a lot about childhood and what was going on with food then. Children who, you know, had women, for example, who young female children who had maybe brothers in the house and there was competition around food and who could eat, who could like, if you didn't eat that quickly, then someone else would eat it. That kind of stuff leads us to think, oh, I must eat this now. Also, your parents' relationship with food in their body. So how your mum talks about her body, what your dad does around exercise and thoughts and feelings around food. Is where it has a massive impact on you when you're younger. What your peers say to you when you're a kid about your body or about what you eat has a big impact on what you will go on to eat later. Um, and I think, you know, it's really important to explore all of those things and to unpack it in order to allow you to reset things. And, and my main kind of thing to say would be if you notice that food 
on eating or not eating is taking up a lot of your brain energy and you're putting too much brain energy into it and it's taking, you know, taking up if 90% of your thoughts are like, what am I going to eat next? And am I going to eat that? And am I allowed to eat this? And I don't look like that. And maybe I should look like that and all that kind of stuff. If that is constantly going on in your head, then go and get some help because you don't have to live like that. And it's not helpful. It's not healthy. And it, even though it might keep you in the kind of aesthetic shape that you feel is right or feel is, you know, something you want to achieve, aesthetics are kind of very little to do with health, certainly very little to do with mental health. Um, and also doesn't you know, being in good shape does not mean that the rest of your life is happy and healthy. So just being cautious about that kind of tipping point for you as an individual, where you go from being motivated and happy and excited to be eating well and healthy eating, all this kind of stuff, and where actually that tips into these kind of more disordered eating and, and challenges with your relationship with food. Yeah, it's quite interesting you saying that, like, because obviously, um, being because uh, I'm an athlete myself, um, a rugby player, and obviously it's like such a vital part of of what we do like our diet our nutrition and and what we put in what we avoid what we what we choose to eat and um you know we get loads of advice on it and and we we sort of make sure that we're on top of it uh you go we get we get skin full skin folds um we've had dexa scans in the past and it sort of maps out you know obviously you know what your fat ratio is and what percentage of body body fat you've got um and it's like you know it is sort of a question would be, I guess, is like, what's the healthy sort of way to, um, in terms of performance, if there's some people out there like like me that are interested in performance and interested in um, being in good nick to play the game and, and to, to, to do their job, what's the healthy sort of um, way to look at it? What's like the way to... Because I imagine, I, you know, I could slip into like, all right, I can't, yeah, definitely not eating this or... Um, but it might be brief and it might be sort of a, a, an understanding that I've got rather than sort of a, a constant overanalyzing. Is that probably the difference which which you might touch on or which which is, is probably better for someone who, who is concerned in performance and, and needs to be sort of dedicated in, in a way and disciplined with what they eat? Yeah, I think that the difference there is that it's your job. It's your job to perform. It's your job to, you're paid to do that. Um, and you have the supervision and support to be able to do it in a, in a hopefully a healthiest way you can. Um, I think, you know, there is something about just allowing yourself to relax your rules and whatever those rules are, having times where you think, OK, I know that I can I'm just going to have a barbecue with my family and I'm going to relax. I'm going to have a nice time and I'm not going to feel guilty about it if you feel super guilty about it and you worry about it and you, you know, you're thinking about it in the evening. Oh, God, I shouldn't have eaten this and that and that. That, that then becomes an issue for you, especially if you are a professional sports person who trains so regularly and whatever else, because actually it's going to go off. It's going to come off. It's not going to change things massively. Um, I think one of the problems, you know, I think professional sports people and athletes, we can kind of put into one category a little bit. But I think that there's a massively blurred line at the moment between professional sports people and then people who actually have a nine to five job mm. and a desk job, whatever it is but still want to look like professional sports people. Yeah, that's true. And are therefore using all of their free time and all of their spare brain energy and some of the stuff they might want to put into work um, on thinking about how and when they are going to train and what that looks like and being in the gym you know, at four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, and then going to the job and then back in the gym, whatever else. I think that we um, just need to kind of balance that a little bit because I think we, you know, it can just end up being such a big focus of your life, especially if you're not paid and supported and supervised by professionals with what you're eating, with how you're training and all that kind of stuff. 
and people take people take dangerous shortcuts don't they i mean like steroid use and stuff with the gyms and like you said health isn't even on their mind it's all about the aesthetics because if health was on their mind they wouldn't be partaking some of the practice they do like yeah yeah. so yeah the work there the the real work there is asking why so why Mm. does it matter if you have a six-pack or you don't have a six-pack why does it matter if you're a size 12 instead of a size 8 why does it matter what does it mean about you as a person on the inside what does it mean if you put on two pounds what does it mean if you have a really low body fat percentage what does that actually mean about you because Mm -hmm. the answer is it means nothing (laughs) it means absolutely nothing it means that you might be able to take a nicer selfie that you feel more confident about it might mean that when you compare yourself to other people's bodies you feel better what does that really mean it means nothing unless you are a professional sports person it's irrelevant to the rest of your life but you will have attached some sort of very important meaning to it. So in your head, it will mean that you are less worthy, you are less valuable, you are less lovable, whatever that meaning is that you've attached to it. That's the thing that you need to unpack. And that's the healing work that you need to do on yourself. So that you, and I'm not saying that you should, everyone should just go off and get massively obese and forget about, you know, their self-confidence and how they look and all that kind of stuff. Like everyone wants to look nice and feel comfortable and everyone wants to be able to, you know, walk up hills without being out of breath and all this kind of stuff. I'm not saying you should just let go of all of that stuff. That stuff is important and that stuff is health. But aesthetics is not the same as health. And it doesn't matter what you look like. The people you love would rather you were happy and healthy and doing all the good stuff rather than in the gym every day. And I think we've just, so many people have attached far too much um, value to aesthetics at the sacrifice of all the other things that are actually valuable. Yeah, I think it, I think there is a degree of of sort of questioning and self awareness that is probably uh, helpful there, it's especially if if you are a person that is striving and and sort of struggling to get to that that top one percent, you know, um, appearance and aesthetics. It is probably worthwhile in it to to sort of ask those questions and um, have a bit of reflection time on that. Totally, totally, but difficult to do. I would say most people, um, I guess most people listen to this are interested because they're already kind of broadly looking at their mental health and thinking about things. So kind of um, preaching to the choir in a little way, in some ways, I guess. But I think that there is just this, uh, it's difficult to get off that mental treadmill and think, actually, why am I doing this? What's the purpose? Am I gaining anything from it? And, and maybe you were right at the beginning about coronavirus making people get off. Like, you can't go to the gym. So if you're at home trying to replicate like a powerlifting gym, you can't. That's not possible. So there's going to be lots of changes to people's bodies, and I, I, you know, I wonder how people will cope with that if it has been, you know, if it has been the sole focus of their life for a long period of time. Yeah, and for us athletes, it's definitely, um, you know, we've definitely come down a few pegs in that sense. You know, we're we're used to training so much. We're used to going in, um, you know, early hours in the morning, doing a, an hour and a half gym session, a wrestling session video session and then and then like an hour and a half field session outside um but that's all with you know involvement with the other lads and and sort of a full rack of of, of equipment and gym and and facilities but now we're we're left to um being sent some dumbbells and and some other bits of kit to to try and try and do our best so it's it's we certainly have been thrown off that treadmill so to speak yeah totally I wonder as well how uh, particularly team sport people like yourself are struggling with, um, you know, losing your connection with your teammates. And like, that must be such an important part of your life and must have such an impact on your quality of life. I guess you choose a team sport because you like that camaraderie, I, I would guess. 
it must be difficult to have lost that. Exactly, yeah. It's 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 really relevant, and uh, I mean, social connections are so healthy for us, and you know, they're so sort of um, necessary for us. Um, and we've been we've been cut off, so to speak. You know, we've got the WhatsApp, and um, I think everyone's sort of wary how many time how much time they spend on electronic devices at the minute but um you know zoom as well right how many zooms have you been on with the with the team well skype mate we're on skype now so you know how how good of a change is that a bit of a difference mixing it up (laughs) (laughs) but yeah but we we, we're zooming mate we're zooming every tuesday and and we're getting people in uh, on well in people in people on the zoom to to talk about different stuff and um give their experiences on life so that's sort of bringing us together in points um but yeah completely different completely different um and, and just going back to like the relationship with food and um something that i've sort of had a relationship with lately sophie is is looking at um intermittent fasting but also um a 48 hour fasting could you could you sort of shed some light on any research that, that you know of or any sort of viewpoints that you have on that too yeah, so uh, we've done, there's some great work in looking at fasting, um, intermittent fasting, um, as a mechanism for uh, weight loss for people and uh, adapting body composition probably is more the right terminology for you guys. Um, and what we know is that sort of 16-8 pattern of eating can be really beneficial and helpful for weight loss and weight maintenance, as can these sort of uh, intermittent fasting patterns where you have kind of two days of the week where you have very few calories and the rest of the week you eat a little bit more freely. That's really effective for, for weight management for a lot of people, not everybody. Um, and I think the key with fasting is to remember that if you've got headaches or you feel unable to perform mentally or you're feeling really lethargic, it's probably not the right pattern for you. Whereas if you get up in the morning, you don't feel hungry until 12, 2, whatever, then fine, enjoy it and don't don't worry too much about it. You know, We need to tune into our appetites more, all of us. When you go beyond that kind of 16, 20 hour fast, there isn't any research into longer lasting fasts, partly because in the research world, you would really get, you would really struggle to get ethical approval to study the impact of longer fasts, because we basically know that it's not very good for your body. Um, So in that sense, there isn't any ongoing research into that. But I do see like long term fasts being done a bit more regularly, um, people trying them out and things like that. I guess I sort of feel like if you're doing it for the right reasons and you're doing it for a mental, like to, to sort of um, look at your mental resolve and to think about your relationship with food and to try and reset things a little bit, I think as long as you're drinking enough water and maybe taking some electrolytes, the harm is probably minimal, um, especially if you're, a, if you're a fit and healthy person in the first place. Um, but there just isn't any research, so we can't recommend it. And you know, I've seen people who've struggled with things like their gut function and things like that after doing long-term fasts and these sorts of things. So it's interesting. We don't know a lot about it um, in those longer-term fasts, but certainly 16-8 patterns. And if you're having those two days a week where you have very few calories and the rest of the time eating a bit more freely, completely fine for weight management. There is a lot of suggestion that fasting is kind of the elixir of health and that it means you'll live forever. And that it's kind of helping your cells to regenerate and rejuvenate and all this kind of stuff and protective of cancer. I've seen all sorts of things peddled online about fasting. Um, and unfortunately, that's uh, that work has only been done in what we call cell lines. It's been done in like a Petri dish based on like little bits of people's cells that have been taken and, and, and proliferated and grown. 
So it's not even a lot of that hasn't even gone into rat studies, let alone into human studies. So there is some data to suggest it helps your cells to regenerate fasting, but it's literally done in petri dishes, not in not in humans yet. So it, you know, people who are suggesting that that's going on and that's definitely happening are, are, are misinterpreting the science massively. There. Do you do you often like sigh when you see the latest fad come up? Because um, obviously you're aware of this all the time. Right? You're aware of this research on top. And I remember first coming across fasting. I think a few years ago it was on um, Dr. Rhonda Patrick. I think she had a guy called uh, Bortolongo, I think his name was. Um, and there's Peter Atia as well. as another guy who's been on Joe Rogan podcast. And if you listen to this, they, they say there's some very early promising stuff in like in those sort of studies you mentioned. But then a few months later, you see wellness people basically conflate, like you've just said, conflating that to saying that, you know, if we all fast for four, five, six days, we get into ketosis and we become clear and our, we stop cell aging. And we do, do you sigh when you see these links made to people just misrepresenting what the early science, even if it's promising, might suggest? Yeah, definitely. And I think that the problem is that it's dangerous for a lot of people. Fasting for those long periods of time is actively dangerous for some people. Um, equally, you know, if you already have a slightly fragile relationship with food and you're already kind of very happy when you're restricting and that's really making you feel positive about yourself and your self-esteem and then suddenly someone says, oh, why don't you fast for even longer? Then that can really damage things. You know, that can really tip you into that more eating disorder type territory. I think there's some interesting things around fasting in that like it's been it's been turned into this kind of glamorous thing when actually like of course if you miss meals you lose weight there's no magic <laughs> there's no magic if you skip meals you lose weight like the anorexia nervosa community have known that for, forever they've been doing it um so ultimately skipping meals means you lose weight there's no magic to it there's no kind of special formula um it's just for some people it works as a, as a meal pattern and for some people it doesn't i would say like i constantly get messages from journalists about the latest fad diet that I often haven't even heard of the stuff around like I think the cert diet was the one that came has been coming up a lot recently I think that's what Adele is reported to have followed to lose all of her weight and I just read these things and I'm like oh, for god's sake it's just this it's the same thing dressed up as a different thing mm -hmm. and given a new name and people are like, Oh my God, this is amazing. It's going to solve my problems. But, Magic pill. Yeah, exactly. And actually you, like, get, you get Atkins and you get paleo and then, you know, they're, they're often, yeah, yeah. They get a new same label. Thing. Exactly. Keto, same thing, different name. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, you know, if you are somebody who follows those diets and bounces between them, it, it's quite obvious uh, that they fail they don't work none of them work um the issue is you, know, you need to explore why you're eating as opposed to what you're eating um that's the key to resolving some of those issues and understanding you know what's driving your overeating or your undereating let's talk about why um because that's where you can really uh, make a difference and actually you know with all of these extreme diets and all of this these fatty things that we see coming up health lies in the middle of all of these extremes you know, health lies in between veganism and carnivorism, like being a carnivore. There's not great health either side of those two massive extremes. Everyone is different genetically and everyone wants to sit slightly somewhere differently on that scale. Um, and obviously you can supplement and you can do other things to support your diet if you choose to take a different route. Um, same with like super low carbohydrate diets, keto diet, and then like, I don't know, fruitarian diet where you eat primarily only carbohydrates. Health lies in the middle of those two things, you know, but we... That doesn't sell books. That doesn't sell 
That's true. Diet plans that doesn't sell, and you don't need a special nutritionist to tell you to eat five a day and kind of eat a bit of this and a bit of that. <laughs> like that doesn't yeah. sell anything to anyone. So it's a difficult, um, it's a difficult pitch. And I think particularly with the world of with the internet the way it is and how fascinated everyone is with nutrition. On one hand, it's great for people like me. On the other hand, it's an absolute minefield because everyone has an opinion and everyone is doing different things. Mm. Just very quickly before we move on from fasting, just because. You know, it's not often people will get someone with your expertise to actually outright kind of say something. And we've got a group of lads in a mentality club who are part of our kind of supporters. And I know quite a few of them dabbling fasting at the moment. And a few of them talk about their relationship with food and it being uh, something which which holds them back a bit. Um, what, would you be confident of saying at the moment there's an upper limit of fasting you think is OK and, and you wouldn't advise going beyond that at the moment? But is there an upper limit number you think is... You mentioned like yeah. 16, 20. Is there a number you'd, you'd be confident to say, look, by all means, test it up to this point. After that, there's no science to back it up. Yeah. So that point at the moment is 20 hours. So anything beyond a 20 hour fast, there's just no research to support it. Um, and I think we, one of the things that's important is that I have to be an evidence-based practitioner. So I can't recommend a, a, a fasting beyond that point. I would lose my license if I was telling everyone to go in like fast for more than more than that amount of time because there's just no research to support it. So the standard protocol that we use in research and that has lots of backing is 16-8. So you're fasting for 16 hours and eating in an eight-hour window. That's our best evidence. There is a little bit of evidence that 20-hour fasts aren't harmful and that might work for some people. But that is really at the extreme end of the research that we've done so far. So, you know, just be aware that 16 hours is has got your best evidence available and and what what is the science behind um like the 16 hour fast like what is 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 that just that you, you're not eating as many calories and you're going to lose weight but is, is there more in to do to do with like um the liver breaking not breaking down um the food that you're putting into it has to use fat is is, is that sort of going onto another fact of it or yeah totally i mean so so uh, at a really basic level, skipping meals means that your body has to use your fat stores, so your stored energy, um, to fuel your body, to fuel your body's processes. So um, if we think about what your body's doing all the time, all of your organs use up a huge amount of energy. So your liver just doing its normal work uses up a lot of energy. Your brain just doing its normal work uses up a lot of energy. Um, all of your organs are using up a lot of physical energy all the time. So using up a lot of calories to do their normal day-to-day functions. All of us will burn far more energy just while we sleep than we would in a, in a workout. And that's because our body is just constantly having to use energy. Um, so when you don't have a meal to fuel that energy turnover, you will have to use your stored energy. And we all store energy in our liver and in our muscles as glycogen. And then that's a bit like our batteries, our stored like battery energy. And then after that, we store it in our fat. And so once your batteries are empty, so your glycogen is used up, you then will use your fat as energy. And that's like a backup generator. Your body doesn't want to use it unless you absolutely have to. So by fasting, you are forcing your body to use up your glycogen energy, so your batteries, and then go into that reserved energy or that backup generator energy in your fat stores. But it's not because you're doing it 16A. It's not because of anything else. It's just because you haven't got any fuel going in your mouth. And so you have to use up your stored energy. Um, again, for some people, that fasting pattern, you might feel better if you skip your evening meal and you go have then have an overnight fast. 
um, as well. And then you eat breakfast in the morning. Lots of people are kind of morning people and our circadian our circadian rhythm, our kind of body clock is dictated by our genes. Some people are morning people and they feel really hungry when they first wake up in the morning and their body is like ready to go. And maybe that's people who feel really positive when they're training in the morning. And then there's lots of us who don't feel so great in the morning and that actually don't really want to eat and our body doesn't really get going until later in the day. And those people may prefer to fast through the morning and then eat in the afternoon. Brilliant. Does that make sense? Yeah, I like that. Mm. Thanks for that. That show. makes a lot of sense. Um, that's brilliant. And and obviously the the stuff that you're really sort of a specialist in is um, is like the gut health. And and I think this has sort of been flirted as, as being something really important nowadays. And, and, and I guess you're the person to speak to on, on how that can relate to us. And in specific men, I guess, you know, you know like thinking about our lifestyle, like how does that relate to to us being healthy healthy people yeah great question i think that there is like um this acceptance that men don't have good gut health and that you know there's just this kind of acceptance that there's wind and there's bloating Mm. and there's maybe like really horrible bowel motions and things like that i usually use the word poo and i I hope everyone feels all right about that um So I think that there's like uh, a perception that men's gut health isn't important and that it's fine. Whereas I guess for women, it's like, oh, you don't want to smell, you don't want to have wind, you don't want to like be embarrassed all the time. So I I think for that reason, women are generally a little bit more interested, but I think that men need to be for lots of different reasons. Um, One of the things that is really important to remember is that your microbiome, which lives in your colon, so it's your colon is full of trillions and trillions of different bacterial species and it's like a whole habitat of different species and basically within your colon the species of bacteria that you feed through your diet will proliferate will grow will take over and that will then starve out the, the other ones so there are some bacteria that live in our colon that have really positive effects on our health so what they do is they ferment any leftover food that we we eat that we can't digest They ferment that. And in that fermentation process, they release what we call metabolites. They release little chemicals that then cross our bowel wall and get into our bloodstream. And they affect things like our mental health. They affect our risk of lots of different diseases. Some of them are super positive for our health. And changes to your gut bacteria are associated. So we know that people who are depressed and anxious have different gut bacteria to people who aren't. We know that people who have diabetes have different gut bacteria. We know that people who have cardiovascular disease, who are at risk of strokes, all these kinds of things, they also see, we see patterns of changes in gut bacteria in those people. And so we all, in my opinion, it's super important that we are all feeding the right types of bacteria that live in our colon so that they can proliferate, so that they can grow, and so that we can benefit from all of those changes. And ultimately, um, the more plant diversity you have in your diet, by which I mean the more fruits and vegetables you eat, the more nuts and whole grains you eat, the more seeds you have in your diet, the more diversity you can get in terms of plant uh, plant matter in your diet, the better, because those positive gut bacteria, they love to eat plant matter. And we know that variety is associated with the best outcomes. So I think there'll be lots of people who are living on a diet of like chicken and broccoli and sweet potato and actually, your gut bacteria need more variety than that. Even if a starting point is just to sprinkle some seeds on top of that, you're going to be doing yourself a massive favour. And if you eat lots of processed foods, if you um, eat lots of processed meat in particular, if you have lots of, um, you know, if you have foul-smelling wind, or if you, when you go to the toilet, it's really unpleasant, um, all those kinds of things, those are signs that there's some, what we would call dysbiosis. So some changes to your gut bacteria that are going to be less favourable for you. 
Um, and that means that the gut bacteria that have a less positive effect on your health are likely to be proliferating in your colon. So they're likely to be the predominant species. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're actively having a really negative impact on your health. We don't know that yet. But what it does mean is that they're probably overtaking the positive species and the positive species that we know we get benefits from. You're not quite able to benefit from those at that time. And the easiest thing to do to adjust that is to eat lots of, uh, again, eat lots of plant matter and try to reduce the processed food intake. And, you know, all of those things ultimately also will lead to you feeling better, probably your weight coming down a bit if that's what you're focusing on and all of these other health benefits. Everyone agrees that more fruits and vegetables is good. Um, that's one thing everyone in, in nutrition can agree on, apart from the carnivore community who sit alone in this kind of never eat plants department. But yeah, I think, you know, it's it's super important. It has a massive impact on our health and we all need to be thinking about it a little bit more. Yeah. And so it's basically like you, you wanting to feed the right bacteria with, with the right food and make that sort of like a, a better populated uh, colon uh, yeah. on the right lines. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's a bit like one of the analogies that I use is that your colon is a bit like an aquarium yeah. and it's a bit like an aquarium that you've just kind of let go a bit and you've got some things in there that you want to grow and you want to like breed and get more of and take over. And so you need to put the right food in for those. If you put the wrong type of food in, then the moss and the algae and stuff like that will take over. The other species will die out because it's being taken over by less positive species. And basically what's going on is, you know, when we eat the food that we, that we, all the food that we eat, it goes through our small bowel, which is where all of the nutrients are taken into your bloodstream. So it's broken down by lots of different chemical processes. And then the nutrients are sucked out of your small bowel and into your bloodstream where they go off in your body and do all their jobs. Anything that's kind of left over, anything that we can't digest, then makes its way into your colon. And your colon is a massive organ. It's a meter and a half long. So it goes all the way up from your bottom, so your pelvis on your right-hand side goes all the way up across right under your rib cage and then all the way down your left-hand side before the poo gets into your rectum and into your, um, into the last part of your bowel. Um, and in there, yeah, millions, trillions, trillions of bacteria, huge organ, trillions of bacteria. Um, and that's where anything that you can't digest, anything that your body can't break down, that gets into your colon and that feeds the bacteria. And they will break it down a little bit more. Some of it you'll absorb through your colon, not very much of it though. But ultimately, what's going on there is that those bacteria are uh, having a feast. So you might notice that if you eat lots of ice cream, for example, or have a load of whey protein, that some people will be windier. And that's because some specific species of bacteria are going to town on that leftover lactose that you can't quite digest all of when it gets to your colon. Um, I'm trying to think of other similar examples. If you drink lots of beer, lots of people can't quite digest all of their um, all of the, the gluten that's in beer. And that can then go through to the colon and then those bacteria have an absolute field day on that. Same with cider. Um, so there's lots of things that we do that feed particular types of bacteria and you'll notice that in symptoms. But very often the bacteria that we want to feed, you don't necessarily notice in symptoms because it doesn't have the same kind of impact on our, our experience of eating it. Can I ask a couple of questions on that? So I've very 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 limited understanding of, of this but um, am i correct in saying that the foods you're talking about the wide variety of veg and stuff is that prebiotic uh would that be correct in exactly so, yeah and where do you stand on the um because there's a another kind of fad was the whole probiotic thing and i looked into some studies which actually seem to show that these billions and billions of bacteria that are in these things actually very few of them ever make it to the the point that the um, advertising would say it would 
Um, and a lot of these actually aren't, you know, are almost useless um, in some respects. And um, there was a few, I think there was one called Simprove, which was uh, refrigerated and you had to take it in the morning before having any digestion, which seemed to do okay on some studies. And it was good for IBS. But again, for people who are actually quite healthy, didn't seem to have an impact. Is is probiotics an area where you think, again, we've kind of, um, the headlines are nowhere near what the reality is? Yeah, so probiotics. Um, so first of all, it's important to kind of define probiotics. And it's important that <clears throat> we recognize that they have to be, they're so a supplement form normally. And they contain these good bacteria. So if we use our aquarium analogy, it's a bit like dropping a load of fish, new fish, into the aquarium, right? The good fish, the ones you want. Um, but ultimately, if you don't feed them, they'll just still die. So there's that. But a lot of those probiotics, as you say, they have to go through your whole digestive tract to get to your colon where we want them to proliferate, where we want them to grow and develop and, and breed. Um, and your stomach, everyone's stomach is basically the same pH as like, it's just not very far off the pH of battery acid. It's such a strong wow. acidic environment. And so anything you put in your mouth is turned immediately to very strong acid, <clears throat> which is why some of this alkaline diet stuff drives me mad as well. That's an aside. So bacteria are designed to be killed off. So uh, our stomach acid is designed to kill off bacteria, I should say. So a lot of those bacteria won't survive all the way down into your colon. There is some really clever technology um, where they've created capsules or specific um, types of bacteria within the product that are designed to survive until your colon. But that's um, not guaranteed. There's lots of different factors that will impact on that. Uh, we don't know how many of those bacteria that you're taking. So you'll take like 10 billion strains of bacteria. You don't know how many of them are definitely getting to your colon. But you also, um, you like, they, we don't know how many get through. But also when you buy them, they may have been sat on the shelf in Holland and Barrett for six months. So when they were packaged, they had this many in. But when you mm -hmm. take them, who knows what's left in there? Similarly, they might have been sat in your bathroom cabinet for six months, or you might not. You know, so all these factors have an impact on how many bacteria are actually left in there. That said, there is some really excellent research, <coughs> excuse me, with some particular strains of bacteria and their impact on things like irritable bowel syndrome. Um, so symptoms like wind and bloating and diarrhea, there is some really excellent research into some strains and some products, but it's all a bit of a free for all. Um, Nobody knows that there's very little compelling evidence that one thing will help everybody. So if you have a particular symptom and you want to find a particular probiotic for that symptom, it's worth reaching out for advice and guidance because ultimately everyone's a bit different and you need a little bit of an assessment before someone can uh, tell you which one would be best for you. Um, so the, the main issue of probiotics really is one, we don't know how many, much of them survive through your digestive tract. And two, if you don't feed them with the good stuff, then they will never proliferate and you won't be getting the benefit. And ultimately, all of us have lots of good bacteria already living in our colon. If we just fed them the right things, they would proliferate on their own. You don't need an expensive product. Weirdly, gut health has become really glamorized in the last couple of years. And like, it seems to be like, I don't know, like it seems to be another thing that sort of is out of the reach of the or of ordinary people. And actually, if we all started eating bran flakes again in the morning, <coughs> sorry, if we all started eating bran flakes or Weetabix again in the morning and kind of got more fiber in our diets gut health would be cheaper and more accessible to everybody and it's not difficult to achieve good gut health through just through eating more plants can i just ask another thing on that on that point as well and i made a note of earlier 
you, you use, you've got a coin the aquarium diet by the way if you ever want to make a fad diet <laughs> on instagram or something uh, yeah. on that uh on that analogy about putting in the good fish and and you know if you have loads of ice cream and the thing will uh, go to town and some of the, the the bad things giving you wind um am i right in thinking that that ties into cravings as well like your cravings are linked to perhaps the stuff that you're feeding and you can shift your cravings to more healthier things over time if you feed the uh, good back the good um, bacteria more of the food they want. Is is that is there any science behind that? So yeah, let me just go back one step. So definitely, when we have lots of dairy and things like that, it's not necessary that they're feeding the bad bacteria. It's just feeding the ones. Sorry, that yeah, yeah. More wind for lots yeah. of people. Um, moving forward, then so there's some really early research, some really interesting early research where they took two what we call clean mice so they get rid of all of the bacteria that live in these these mice's mice these mice's um <laughs> gut, guts and then we impregnate them um in their colon so we give them basically like a fecal transplant so we give them the gut bacterial profile of someone who's overweight and someone who's underweight and sometimes this work has been done with twins, so an overweight twin and an underweight or, or a normal weight twin, a healthy weight twin. So their genetics are exactly the same. And, and what we notice is that when we feed, even when we feed these two mice with these different bacterial profiles, the same diet, the mouse with the fat bacterial profile gets fatter, whereas the healthy weight mouse stays the same weight, even when they eat the same diet. The exact and same what, calorie number. So same calories, same dietary profile. And they'd have the same exercise output, presumably, as well. Exactly. They live in the same cage, they do the same things. So we do know that gut bacteria is having an impact on our weight and how we use food and how food is metabolized in our bodies and all these kinds of things. And it's really important that we recognize that when we use twin studies there, everything else is kind of the same. So there is absolutely an impact of our gut bacteria on our body composition. Um, The craving stuff is kind of really a little bit left field you can see it conceptually and you can think well yeah if I had lots of bacteria in my colon who really wanted me to eat lots of processed food because that's what they live on then I might want to eat more processed food but that is not evidence-based at the moment it's a theory it's a kind of thing but we do absolutely know that your you, you know your colonic bacteria have an impact on your body weight on how you utilize food on how you break down food and one of the reasons for that is some of those less positive gut bacteria scavenge more energy from your food. So they they break down your food, but then they give you more energy from it. So you actually get more energy from your food than you would if you had the different balance of bacteria. When I talk about this stuff, I'm not talking about 500 calories a day. I'm not talking about meaningful, like massive changes. I'm talking about really small numbers of calories, but that may build up over a long period of time. So it's not that taking probiotics and changing your bacteria is going to immediately make you thin. There's so many different factors that impact our body weight. But ultimately, there is a slight impact from our gut bacteria on our body weight. And they do in some ways dictate how much weight we gain and how much weight and and what our body composition is. And and so it's like sort of uh, it's like you're saying if you're one person that, you know, so person A has got bad or not so great gut health um gut bacteria can they start the shift um is that like a slow shift like turning an oil tanker really like you say just eating better eating better fiber eating better plants um so that they can move into that area which is a better sort of um setting to 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 metabolize the food and, and to to get the best out of the food rather than having the 
the the pore effect, if you like, of, of putting the weight on. Yeah, totally. So we know that actually changing your diet can have an impact on your gut bacteria in as little as two weeks. So generally it takes longer to have a massive impact will take longer, but we can start to see those changes really quite early. And ultimately there's absolutely no harm in eating more plants and more whole grains and adding more fiber to your diet. And, and if you know in your head that that's going to be having an impact on your gut bacteria and you're thinking, okay, it's going to be quite hard to change these habits for a couple of weeks. But then after those couple of weeks, it will get easier. I'm just going to put in that groundwork at the beginning. Things will ultimately get easier anyway. And we all know that habits just take a bit of time to get in place. But, you know, you hear lots of people saying things like, actually, when I stopped eating processed food, I just don't really want it anymore. It doesn't really appeal to me anymore. And, you know, we, we, we hear those things anecdotally. Um, and that's OK. And that's fine, obviously. And if you still have a McDonald's from time to time, that's cool, too. It's not going to do any harm. But, yes, it is a slow process. Your gut bacteria starts to be dictated as early as when you uh, when you're born so your birthing method whether you were give, whether your mum gave birth to you from cesarean so she was cut, you were cut out or whether you were delivered vaginally that will have an impact on your gut bacterial profile for the rest of your life so there's differences wow. Where, whether you're breastfed or not breastfed has a big impact on your gut bacteria the early food that you're fed when you're weaning has a massive impact on your gut bacteria things like um, who you live with has a big impact on your gut bacteria and so we know that very often, where so in studies, when there's two mice that live together um, and one's overweight and one's underweight, um, very often the gut bacteria starts to gravitate, they start to get very similar, and then both mice start to put on weight in a similar way. So if you put healthy weight mouse and an overweight mouse in the same cage together, mm-hmm. the gut bacteria of the healthy weight mouse will start to look more like the overweight mouse, and then things change. Obviously, mice live really differently to us, they're not necessarily as hygienic and all this kind of stuff. So it's quite different, but it's interesting. Mm. So who you live with has an impact. So I see lots of people who've developed problems having gone to university, having moved to London, uh, all sorts of things. And it's not necessarily because all entirely because of what you eat. It's also because of things like stress. And it's also because of things like commuting and your environment and the sort of things that you're exposed to. So yeah, it's a very interesting uh, dynamics going on in there, but you can protect it and you can look after your gut bacteria through through the ways that we've talked about already, through looking after your diet and making sure you're getting plenty of fibre. And that's your absolute best bet in the moment. Amazing. And I just want to jump on the back of that. Like there's these things where, uh, I can't remember the brand name of it, but it might be Froome or something like that, which is where you um, literally poo in a bag, send it off to America and then they test it um where do you stand on stuff like that they'll send you back advice for what you should be avoiding what you should be eating and stuff um because it's very specific to you but is there any evidence behind that can you can you sort of vouch for that or say that it's it's, it's a good thing to do to poo in a bag and send it send it <laughs> in that context i mean context. yeah never poo in, your, in a bag and send it as opposed to unless someone is specifically asked you to um <laughs> yeah. i so from a scientific perspective, getting lots of information about lots of different people's gut bacteria is very valuable data because we don't have it yet. So companies who are asking you to put a bag and send them this specimen and doing the diagnostic stuff are going to be benefiting massively from all of the data that you're sending them because we don't have that kind of data readily available. The information that you'll get back is to eat more plants, <laughs> to eat yeah. less processed food, and all these things that we've already talked about. You, the information you get back won't be eat more legumes because of this bacteria or you need to have 10 more grams of this every day because we just don't have that level of data yet 
So it's useful. It's interesting. It might make you think, oh, that means that's that's why I'm this way or that's why I get wind or whatever else, depending on how useful the report is. If you just get a report that lists a load of different species of bacteria and their percentage in your colon, I don't think I would even know how to do deal with that without doing a lot of extra research. And that's not very helpful, really. So if you get some really helpful guided research uh, information on what to do with that stuff, then fine. But ultimately, I will tell you that it will be eat more fiber, eat these foods, eat more of these foods, eat less of these foods. And it's all the standard basic healthy eating stuff. So you don't really need that report to tell you to make those changes if you think that you need to. Um, That's the same. It will be pretty much the same for everybody. But also they'll get your data and that's really valuable and they'll probably be selling it on. And that's kind of why they're so motivated in order to Pro- kind of get that information. Probably, yeah. I think my mate sent some of his results and, and it, there were like loads of the sort of standard stuff. And then there were some things that were saying like, you need to avoid eating tomatoes or you need to avoid eating, I, th- I think it was like, some, some, it might have been broccoli or something like that, like a sort of green. And I'm like, how are they telling, like, how are they telling you that? Like, how have they got the specific sort of measure that, what what you're eating there is causing you some sort of distress to your bowel. Do you know what I mean? I'm I'm not sure of. Yeah, I mean they haven't. There's no. That's no. not evidence based. That's a, yeah. that's a massive reach. And just sort of, I think sometimes these companies, they want to have something to tell you. They want to have mm. something to say. Like they love. Obviously, it's useful to say eat lots of this and eat lots of that. But actually, lots of people want to know. And also, don't eat this and don't eat that because ultimately, the reason that people are quite motivated to do those things is often because they're having symptoms that they want yeah. to get rid of. It's like individual, no just, individual. You know, that people want to be like have it unique to them, I guess. Yeah, people want to be special. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, everyone wants to be special. Um, and I guess, I guess we've got to, as we have got the um, number one, <laughs> number one flag flyer of veganism on the call. I don't know why you're always pushing. People. <laughs> it's not even like you've I got. You want to be special, it, mate. I get attacked about it by Every, you. Everyone wants to be special, mate. Um, well, yeah. Can can you tell us a bit about the fiasco that you had, Sophie, with um, with veganism and, and and your standpoint on it before Chris gives all of his um, confirmation by his study? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm joking. I'm joking, mate. I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm more intrigued about asking an expert questions and um, <laughs> yeah, because just before you start, I thought it was interesting when you said, and I actually agree that how flies between. Um, carnivore and veganism and so i guess the question i kind of want to ask you um is i agree with that but i did it for a moral reason so i want to find out how i can still be as healthy but i probably have to try a little bit harder um yeah and but before we we get on to that yeah i think it is worth because it's it's important today that some of these debates get so uh heated and they get quite horrible it'd be interesting to hear your story because you mentioned you had one but we didn't really get into it off air so yeah um yeah so uh one of the things i would say is that if you choose to be a vegan because of moral because of the environment because of ethical reasons then i absolutely think that's so important and remember me talking earlier about how nutrition is so much more than just nutrition like diet is so much more than just nutrition your your what you put in your mouth and what you choose to do is it is also to do with your kind of cultural beliefs and ethics and all this kind of stuff so um and that's a personal choice. We can't be um, judgmental about that as nutritionists, sci- nutritional scientists, as dietitians, anyone else. We can't be judgmental about what your ethical decision making is. If we think about religious groups, we would never be discriminatory about people's choices in that, that kind of department. So I think it's really important to acknowledge that your ethical decisions 
are your own and we can support that and recognize that uh, both environmental and, and whatever else but uh, from a nutritional perspective it's nutrition is science right so there's things we know and it's the young science so there's not we don't know everything yet but there are things we know that are facts so what happened to me was in 2017 which was kind of like peak challenge in my personal life I um I was asked to go on the Victoria Derbyshire show on BBC two um and we were talking about veganism and the quote that seems to have made most people angry is that I said it's much more difficult to meet your nutritional requirements on a vegan diet and that I don't recommend it to my patients. I've listened to it so many times and I'm like, I don't understand. Like, I don't understand why that's not okay. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> Especially because my patients already have lots of challenges in terms like people who see dietitians already have loads of challenges with their diet. Lots of my mm -hmm. patients can't eat a whole list of foods already because it has an impact on their bowel and they can't tolerate them and things like that. So I was like, no, it's fine. Like, it's definitely, definitely fact that it's much more difficult to meet your nutritional requirements. But uh, anyway, I ended up getting uh, a lot. Of, well, let me go take a step back. On the program with me was a guy who at the time was calling himself the Prince of Vegans and had a huge following. He was a professional athlete um, and he was very obviously vocal, not from a science background, but very, very vocal about his beliefs um, with veganism. And following the show, I received a huge amount of abuse Um online written handwritten letters to my work lots of people contacting my colleagues wow. saying that they should never have supported me when they sort of said if they, they thought it was okay on social media or whatever else i've got people saying things like they're going to come and rape my children i don't have children they said things like um this one woman wrote me this really really off the wall letter um which kind of concluded with her saying and even my husband wouldn't have sex with you after having called me a nazi eyed troll and all sorts of things like I uh, do you know and the funniest thing about that is that vitamin B12 deficiency which is one of the most common deficiencies in veganism causes paranoid delusions and I was like <laughs> wow. somebody please go and talk <laughs> wow. anyway um so it was very very difficult personally very difficult my mum was like um why are vegans so nice to animals but they're so horrible to you <laughs> all this kind of stuff I didn't read any of it I just disconnected because I just thought actually I was talking to my PR team at King's and they were like don't worry about it it'll pass it's not the end of the world but a lot of that was led by the, um, you know, Prince of Vegans guy. And still now I get tweets on Twitter calling me names or whatever else. Um, Who is the Prince of the Vegans? Is that well, is it you? I don't is know it a former vegan more, now? Might be more. Yeah. I think, I think it's... Now. I think so, yeah. it is, and he's a yeah, so, he's a he's a former vegan. Yeah. No so fast forward, yeah. fast forward a few years, and oh, the Prince yeah. of Vegans has come out as now being a carnivore, having developed horrendous nutritional deficiencies, and it took all of my strength and communication skills yeah. to message him without saying "I told you so." <laughs> and what I really wanted to know was how I could have reached him better with those messages at the time, because I could have, if he'd listened to my advice, which is just science. He could have prevented getting nutritional deficiencies and stayed a vegan if that was right for him morally and ethically. Mm. And he wouldn't have had to come out as not being vegan and, and experience the same abuse that I got. And basically, he said to me, there's nothing you could have said at that time. Everything I read, everyone I spoke to was on my side. You were just the enemy. And there's nothing you could have said or done at the time that would have changed my mind about that. I guess... Um, yeah obviously that made me feel completely downhearted but ultimately I think that we can you know if you if we're open and if we do have these conversations about how if it's the right thing for you ethically let's talk about nutritionally and let's talk about protecting you and let's talk about keeping you vegan rather than you getting sick and having to stop being a vegan and that being wrong for you then um I think we can have these sort of sensible and open conversations about it and we can support the community like the worst advert for veganism 
is someone who looks knackered, who's really pale, whose hair's all falling out, whose nails are brittle. Like, do you know what I mean? That kind of picture that we have in our heads often of what a vegan looks like. Let's make sure there's lots of vegans who can fly the flag for what you can look like and how you can feel as a vegan if you do look after your nutrition effectively. And, I, you know, I'm all for that. And luckily, off the back of all that TV nonsense, I have had lots of... Um, I get lots of patients come through my clinic who want to optimize their vegan diet and I'm super happy to help people. And that's, you know, a very positive part of my work now as well. Um, I think, yeah, yeah, I think it's worth mentioning. I think that specific vegan was also into ex- extreme, extreme fasting and drinking urine and stuff as well. And um, <laughs> Actually, he only turned to drinking urine when he started getting symptoms from his nutritional deficiencies though. And I'm like, just honestly, how can you have got that? <laughs> how are you willing to do that before you're even willing to consider the science, you know, the, the consequences of your diet, I find that mind blowing. And that's a level of sort of indoctrination that really we need to be very careful of. And, and let's be clear, he could have been vegan. He could have been a low carb person. He could have been fasting. We attach so much of our personal identity to our diets these days and our diet mm. tribe and who we, who we look like. We're very polarized with nutrition often and i think you know that means that we can this confirmation bias that we talked about this this can really mean that you only see things that are positive about your diet and you, you're not willing to look and think actually as a human as an individual is this right for me right now and you know that makes me worried but maybe we're coming out the other side of it yeah and attention and social kudos are very attractive to people aren't they and i think that is behind a lot of the prominent people who unfortunately get these platforms um, well, if it, if it was a, a, you know, I'd like to see uh, some uh, someone with your expertise who's a vegan who talks knowledge with knowledge about how they optimize their vegan diet on these shows rather than some of these people who are famous through YouTube. But mm. we don't live in that world. But. but we've seen this kind of play out. And there is a massive issue in media generally with an expert being sat on the same, you know, being given the same amount yeah. of weight and airtime as a non-expert. Um, or someone with an opinion, even a strong opinion. And we've seen how that impacts things like anti-vax people and all that sort of thing. So I think there is a move away from that being the norm in media and more towards uh, and you know, this coronavirus stuff as well, hopefully will will have an impact on that because ultimately the voice of the expert somehow needs to be given more credibility than it is at the moment. Um, And I'm not saying that, obviously I feel like I am an expert and I've I've done a lot of work in this area, but um, it's just so important we can't have it's dangerous for people you know i i see the vegans come into my clinic and they were told they don't need vitamin b12 like supplements they were told this they were told that they're suffering the mental health is suffering the sleep is suffering they're clearly underweight they're you know clearly like suffering because some blogger has said no don't listen to the dietitians don't listen to science and that's that's poison you know that's not helping mm-hmm. anybody I, I completely agree with that and i just want to say that Stevie would tell you, I definitely do listen to the science and, and everything from uh, my algae oil, my vitamin D, my vitamin um, B12 supplement. I uh, I know the areas that are harder for me to to reach, and I I try and make sure I, I still reach those. So that's so um, good. I'm so like delighted to hear you taking algae oil. I've got a real interest in brain health, and yeah, you know that's just so important for vegans. Well, I was taking krill oil before. Like, I was actually really uh, health focused with my diet before I went vegan. Um, and I actually found it quite tough for the first six to nine months. Um, yeah. I noticed quite a few changes and even things like uh, increasing the amount of fiber and veg. I noticed my bowel and, and, and gas and things. And it wasn't easy. I think people were just 
because they believe in it morally, which I do, you know, I wish we had a better relationship with uh, animals and factory farming, I think is something we need to talk about more. Um, but people would lie and say it's all rosy just because they believe the diet. Um, yeah. And, you know, it wasn't all rosy. And now I, I feel perfectly healthy and as good as I ever did um, when I was healthy before. But there was a bit of a shift and it was tough and I did have to do my research for it. Mm. Yeah, it's an adjustment for sure, isn't it? And, and again, like, if people want to d- go through that adjustment, then there are people who are willing to support them from a, from a health perspective. But, you know, it's not. It, yeah, most of the messages come from un, unqualified people, which is always a bit dangerous. Yeah, and um, I guess just switching a gear, and I Chris, I know Chris has got um, a stack of research in this too, actually, and, and he's had the same experience as me. Um, and as I mentioned when when we were setting up this podcast, so um, I've got I'm so I'm struggling with post concussion syndrome, and it's been about three and a half four months. Um, but I've repeatedly been taking supplements. I've been taking fish oils, vitamin D three. Um, I'm now taking lion's mane mushrooms and um, other medicinal mushrooms as well. Um, and I'm also taking creatine and I might have missed one off. One, one, you one did curcumin, turmeric, was that one? Yeah, turmeric, that's it. Bipiperine with the black pepper. Or... That's it, yeah. Um, and obviously trying to eat berries and, and seeds and, um, yeah, stay, and protein, obviously trying to keep my protein um, amount up. Is there any other stuff that, that you can think of to add in there, um, you know, just to scratch my own itch in, in, in this aspect for, what, for what's been proved to be, to be beneficial for the brain health, but also if you could touch on, if you've seen anything about medicinal mushrooms and, and, and their benefits too? Yeah, so um, the first thing to say is that concussion it is caused by rupturing of brain cells. So, and the little fatty membrane that we have around every single cell in our body, but specifically around our brain cells, dictates how stretchy they are. So when you're hit on the head, there's an impact and that impact then travels through all of your brain cells. And if your brain cells are really nice and elastic, they will stretch and then they'll go back to their normal shape. If your brain cells are not very elastic because you have a different balance of fat in your diet than what is optimal, they will stretch and they will burst. And that's when you get these sort of long, longer term concussions and things. It's not to say that what you were doing before was wrong and you brought this on yourself or any of those things. I think there's little understanding and evidence and, and or little understanding and knowledge out there generally. Um, but also there are certain hits to your head, which you cannot, you can't sustain. And that's not, you know, that therefore the, the sort of impact factor has a massive uh, difference in that, in that sort of pattern. So, um, fish oil is really, really important. They help all of your cells in your body to be more elastic, um, but particularly, specifically your brain cells. And we can see, um, <clears throat> we can see visually on scans, the difference in brain structure of people who do have fish oils in their diet or algae oil. If you are a vegan, still perfect. Um, the st- physical structure of your brain is different if you don't have them in your diet and you have more of a predominance towards uh, the more processed fats or the less healthy fats or animal fats and things like that. So Mm -hmm. fish oils and eating fish, super, super important for brain health. B vitamins are also really, really important for brain health. B vitamins are very helpful for helping um, in the signaling between brain cells and speeding up those connections and helping you to be able to think and and, and respond more quickly to things, which is obviously um, impacted by things like brain injuries and that sort of thing. The B vitamin is super important as well. Um, there's it, some amazing. That, just sorry, sir. Is 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 that uh, like niacin? Is that 
Is that nice? Vitamin. So B vitamin yeah. complex is the way to go. All of them have got a big impact, but folate is another one that's really important. B12 is completely vital for your brain structure and function. Um, my friend uses a really nice analogy that if you don't have fish oils in your diet or algae oil, if you don't have the right balance of fats in your diet, it's a bit like having 20, 25% of your brain, a quarter of your brain wants to be made up from fish oils from these particular fatty acids. Mm. And if it's not because you don't eat them or you don't take them in supplement form, it's a bit like taking 25% of the bricks of your house out and replacing them with polystyrene. Right. It still kind of works. But if there's a strong wind or there's some mm. other problems, it does, it's not going to work as well. So that's useful to try and remember. Or like taking one of the wheels of your car off and it's made out of, I don't know, polystyrene again, whatever. 25% of your brain structure wants to be made from these particular fatty acids that come from fish or fish oils. Um, so that's really important. B vitamins are super important. There's some really amazing work going into anthocyanins, which come from blue fruits and vegetables. So blueberries are kind of our most predominant one of those. And they... Um, even in young children, there's, there's some great data showing that if you have a blueberry smoothie before an exam, then they perform much better in exams than when they haven't had a blueberry smoothie. Um, and then they cross them over and the ones who had the blueberry smoothie the first time don't have it the second time. And then again, the ones who have it perform much better. So there's some great data around that and also in anthocyanins and prevention and treatment of um, prevention and also mental performance when people have memory deficit problems, so dementia and Alzheimer's and things like that. So those are really powerful and important. And if you imagine us, you know, back in when we were cavemen or whatever, we would have eaten a lot of berries, so much more than we yeah. would now typically in, in a general diet. So they're important. Um, antioxidants important. You're doing lots of that already and you're having the anti-inflammatory stuff from the turmeric. There's not, you know, there's no magic data at the moment, unfortunately, to support that specifically in brain injuries. But um, I think it's interesting and I think it's useful. Um, I would say, like, so <laughs> professionally professional hat on there's not enough data to support medicinal mushroom use or to recommend it personally i've got a close friend who does a lot of work um uh, what's the right word um selling um, i don't want to use that word but selling and promoting the use of medicinal mushrooms for mental performance and for treatment of things like anxiety and i've used them i think they're great it makes me feel very, like better um so anecdotally i think that there is some good stuff going on there and again we would have had a lot more of these kinds of things in our diets as we were evolving and we just don't really include them now so yeah i think there's some good stuff around that and happy to talk to you more about those off air and the research that i have done it's a growing area of research certainly just very quickly because it was something i i had a uh, I was assaulted and had a bad post-concussion syndrome experience as well. It was six and a half months for me of because um, I was knocked unconscious and it was just, uh, yeah, it took a while. So I got really deep into this because I'm sure it resonates with you at the moment, Stevie, is just, because it's your everyday experience and it's invisible to everyone else and it's just like this slow, constant torture and then you start doubting what you have. It's just this real kind of... Um, it can kind of consume you. So I went kind of deep down that rabbit hole and one of the things I came across, and I, I, I might butcher this now, but there was a, and again, it was very early study, that there was a genetic component to people who suffer from it worse as well. And it was the, I think it was the APO4 gene. Um, and it's also the same gene, which means you might be more prominent to Alzheimer's. And uh, yeah, I just thought, is there any, did you ever overlap with um, how our genetics do you know anything about that for a start? But also, just do you touch on how genetics impacts how um, nutrition affects us, if that makes sense? Yeah, so our genes have a massive impact on everything that's going on in our body. And it doesn't surprise me at all that there is a genetic element with 
brain injury recovery or, or slower brain injury recovery and those kinds of things. And as you say, that will be linked to all of the other things like your risk of stroke in the future, risk of Alzheimer's, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm not suggesting that either of you are going to have strokes or get Alzheimer's, but you know there is a there's genetic determinants of all of these kinds of things. And yes, nutrition and our the way that our bodies use nutrition um, is impacted by our genes. So we know that some people um, are much more genetically predisposed to things like diabetes and heart disease. Um, and it's not that you can't at some level prevent that if you are careful, but you will have to be much more careful than other people. Some people are more genetically predisposed to obesity um, for lots of different reasons. There's loads of genes that change your, your risk of obesity. Um, and it's not, again, it's not that you can't override that, but it just will be harder for you. Um, so, yeah, nutrition and gen genetics is a really kind of hot topic at the moment. It's really up and coming. Luckily for me, one of my really close friends is a really excellent geneticist. So whenever I get these sorts of questions, I give him a call and he tells me everything because I don't know enough. <laughs> yeah. That, that's actually quite refreshing to hear as well. Someone who says, like, I have a close friend who's an expert in this area, no more than me, and I don't know enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wish more people did that on so many topics. <laughs> okay, uh, you can't. Nutrition is so broad. You yeah. can't know everything. And science is super broad as well. Like, I think everyone, I guess maybe if everyone said it out loud, they'd be all right to say, yeah, I ring up this person when I'm not sure about this. It's mm. kind of the ethos of our business, actually, and, and what we do. So, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, which politics was like that as well, right? Yeah, like yeah. We could just use experts <laughs> far more than That's we true. do. If only. <laughs> Brilliant. I, I I think that that's amazing. We've we've kept you for quite a long time there, Sophie, but that obviously shows that we've <laughs> we've been really getting some some amazing stuff, and and I'm really grateful that you've um, you've come on today and and shared all this knowledge with us, and and hopefully the listeners today get you know when they, when they listen to this podcast, we'll we'll get so much from it. Yeah, it's oh, amazing, Sophie. It's one of those where um, I think I've got to the third point of like 10 where I thought we could touch on, but um, yeah, yeah, we'd love to get you back on. Yeah. And um, but just to finish as well, there's so much conflicting uh, kind of noise about nutrition out there. Like one week it would be uh, fat's good, one week fat's bad, one week keto's good, one week don't do keto. And um, it's really, really refreshing to actually speak to someone who spent their life being an expert in this area and can kind of cut through some of that um, that noise so yeah hopefully people get a lot of benefit from this and uh, i found it really really useful so yeah thank you thank you it was really nice it was really enjoyable chat <laughs>